Good day. You are listening to Free City Radio. It is Wednesday, the 30th of March, and this is the 103rd edition of the program. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christophe. On the broadcast today, I am going to be sharing a conversation I had with radio host and author David Barsamian. David hosts a program called Alternative Radio that is shared on campus community and public access radio stations across the world. This is a conversation about what is currently happening in Ukraine, an attempt to look at some of the deeper historical issues at play, the role of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, uh, in relation to the history of the Cold War, also looking at the ways that military industrial complex companies, so companies within the quote-unquote defense industry that produce weapons and arms, are benefiting from conflict in Ukraine. I thought it was important to try to think critically about the scope of coverage on Ukraine, looking at some of the more systemic issues and the role of Western corporations in the push for militarization, but looking at this not from a perspective that tries to legitimize or take away from the magnitude of crimes that are being committed by the Russian state, the Russian military against civilians in Ukraine. These have been uh, importantly documented by major international human rights organizations, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. I would encourage people to look up those reports. Uh, They're keeping track. I did think it was important, though, to think critically about the framing of coverage on Ukraine and uh, the importance of looking at history of uh, different political players involved, including the U.S., including Canada, and through the institution of NATO. So I wanted to reach out to David. I thought that he would have um, an insightful and honest perspective on these issues. And so here's our conversation on Free City Radio. NATO was formed uh, after World War II in 1949, uh, specifically, as a military alliance. Its raison d'etre was to deter Soviet aggression in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the Soviets, uh, for the, on their part, uh, created the Warsaw Pact, which was a mili- their military alliance to resist NATO uh, aggression. So we had then, I'm going to collapse a lot of history here, we had then the long, decades-long Cold War. Let's fast forward and jump to the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was the head of the Soviet Union then, and he was kind of the steward that was um, enabling uh, the USSR to disentangle itself, essentially. And there was, of course, discussions with uh, the United States as the main player Uh, in NATO. And I I should say, you know, I mean, you're in Canada and Canada was a charter member of NATO and remains so today. This organization is run by Washington. It's essentially the muscle, the military muscle of U.S. imperialism. So it is, you know, called out, for example, in the 1990s in its 78-day bombing of Serbia. Uh, That was, you know, a military uh, action against uh, Slobodan Milosevic. And you hear the same kinds of things 
that was said about him and Saddam Hussein and Vladimir Putin today, you know, they are demonized. And these are not very attractive uh, political leaders. They deserve demonization. But I think when you uh, engage in excessive hyperbole and exaggeration, uh, you're prevented from understanding the context and why things happen. So going back to Gorbachev, Soviet Union is collapsing. He goes to talk with uh, James Baker, the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, and they work out uh, a deal. And it is in this deal that assurances were made to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. That's almost a direct quote that the US NATO would not take advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union and move into the former Soviet satellite uh, states. This is well-documented. Uh, it's not uh, controversial in any sense whatsoever. And so for this, in this deal, uh, Gorbachev allowed uh, Germany to be reunified, you know, which was a major concession on their part, Germany twice invaded first Tsarist Russia, then the Soviet Union, and almost destroyed that country on two occasions. So there was, obviously, there is some historical background there that we need to take uh, into account. What happened after uh, the, this deal was consecrated, uh, the U.S. expanded NATO, uh, immediately took in uh, different states uh, to the point where today there are 30 countries that are mem that are members of uh, NATO, including such powerhouses as North Macedonia uh, and Montenegro uh, and others and other states. So it's this military alliance, and and Putin uh, has referred to this expansion of NATO as a threat to Russia's national interests. Now, from the Washington point of view, enemy or enemy designated states are not allowed to have national security interests. Only the United States and its vassals, like Canada, like Germany, like Italy, like France and the others, they are allowed to have national security interests but not in this case, Russia. Uh, Putin has used the expansion of NATO uh, to justify uh, a war on the Ukraine, which is unjustifiable. This is a clear example of a war crime, uh, a war crime that incidentally, the United States has engaged in multiple times, so many times that I would take the rest of this hour to list all the countries the U.S. has invaded, occupied, has put sanctions on, and has, in general, uh, terrified and uh, dominated. So international law applies only to those that Washington deems as its enemy. Uh, one of the pop phrases now that's almost become a like Orwellian newspeak is rules-based international order. Putin and in Ukraine uh, must be resisted because he's upsetting the rules-based international order. 
Well, what does that mean in English? Uh, clearly, it means U.S. hegemony, which determines the U.S., the rules-based international uh, order. I mean, you know, I think, you know, Putin uh, has gravely overstepped, but the war on Ukraine uh, continues with an enormous uh, loss of life. Uh, was it necessary? I think if the security interests of Russia were addressed by the United States and NATO, that some kind of compromise could have been worked out antebellum before the war. Uh, now there are, of course, discussions going on, but you know, already so many thousands of lives have been lost and so much destruction has occurred. It's important uh, to point out that uh, Ukraine is a huge country. It's the size of uh, Texas. It's, you know, it's enormous uh, space. It's also a major uh, grain producer. It's in the top tier of wheat, uh, corn, and barley production. Uh, it's, you know, it has a population of 40, 45 million uh, people, a long border with Russia. You know, and one of the things that's mentioned is that, you know, Putin is an aggressor. He seized the Crimea in uh, 2014, which is true. But again, it's helpful to know some of the historical background. Crimea was detached from the USSR in 1954 by Khrushchev, who was then the prime minister and who happened to be Ukrainian. And the, the, the Soviets, the Union did not approve, many aspects of the Soviet Union did not approve of this uh, annexation, giving it to the Ukraine. So giving Crimea to the Ukraine. So Putin's action there uh, is, I'm, I'm channeling what he might be thinking, is correcting this historical error, correcting this historical mistake when uh, Crimea was cut out from the USSR and would now be then, the, of course, Russia and given to the Ukraine in, in 1954. The media here in the United States, and I suspect in Canada as well, has been uniformly um, hostile toward uh, any discussion about uh, Russia's uh, national security interests. And uh, that, of course, is uh, most unfortunate. We need to be negotiating. We need to, as uh, Winston Churchill, who was quite an aggressor himself during his uh, long tenure as a uh, prime minister, and even before that as a uh, minister of war, he said uh, famously, it's better to jaw jaw than to war war. And so now, uh, we need to come to the negotiating table. Comments from the U.S. president about regime change uh, in Moscow uh, have, of course, been met with uh, almost universal condemnation, uh, not giving uh, Putin any space, calling him a butcher, a murderer. And, you know, Putin is an easy target. You know, I don't disagree with those uh, descriptions of him. But is it going to be then possible or easy for him to sit down with uh, 
with the U.S. It'll be with Biden, you know, uh, having been subjected uh, to this kind of, you know, these kinds of uh, very negative descriptions. I think it makes it more difficult. So it's not very wise Biden's part, who's not the whitest, you know, brightest bulb uh, on the block uh, and has has shown a definite penchant for uh, putting his foot in his mouth. So that's kind of, you know, the overview of what I see uh, happening there and why it's happening and, uh, you know, what can possibly be done to bring warfare to an immediate halt. I mean, that has to be uh, the goal of everyone concerned. So one aspect that I feel is really um, underreported is the role of uh, the military industrial complex. So here in Montreal, you have some of the largest arms manufacturers in Canada, CAE Systems, Bell Helicopter, um, Pratt & Whitney, um, SNC-Lavalin has had multiple military contracts. So there's a relationship between militarist policy and these companies. Uh, and there's many from Canada, which I listed. Um, that is sort of vaporized from any discussion about foreign policy. And um, I was just wondering not to argue, like I'm not asking this question to assume that these Uh, military companies, many based in Montreal, if we're talking about Canada, are shaping policy necessarily, but they do play a role. And I'm seeing that that role and the the interests of military production um, is not being discussed. And I'm wondering if if you had anything um, to share about the importance of thinking about the military industrial complex in terms of uh, shaping foreign policy in militarist terms as opposed to negotiated uh, terms? It's absolutely critical to, uh, to focus laser-like on the military industrial complex. And that is to say, uh, corporations like Raytheon uh, in the United States, uh, General Dynamics, uh, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, uh, you mentioned those that are based uh, in Canada. Uh, If you are the CEO of a company, one of those companies, or a shareholder, a stockholder in one of those companies, and peace were to break out, and there would be no wars, which means there would be no arms to sell, there would be no weapons to sell to replace the weapons being used in wars, you might not be a happy camper. It's in your financial interest that war is... Uh, promoted, that war is stoked, that war is provoked, uh, and it increases sales of weapons. You know, I just learned that Poland has just signed a $6 billion US dollar deal to buy M1 Abrams tanks. Uh, All the other NATO members, maybe even Canada, are lining up, you know, like pigs at a trough to feed on new military contracts to replace uh, weapons that are being used, ammunition that needs to be replaced, helicopters, jet fighter planes, missiles, uh, and all the paraphernalia uh, that go into uh, the military industrial complex. So there's a definite class interest and economic interest in promoting warfare and embracing it uh, and 
you know, and always upgrading to the next level uh, of super weapons that are needed, that are required. And now we're hearing a lot about hypersonic missiles, you know, on we need to expand and modernize uh, the world's largest uh, nuclear weapons arsenal, which the United States sadly uh, is the custodian of. This is a very, very dangerous uh, area that we're in. And if Putin, for example, is left with no options and is uh, cornered, uh, he may uh, you know, resort to using the unthinkable. And I don't use the term war uh, with the uh, prefix uh, nuclear in front of it. That you know, suggests maybe to some people who don't know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki or all the tests that were conducted on indigenous populations, mainly in the South Pacific, but also in New Mexico and Nevada, where it was mostly indigenous Native Americans who were the kind of subject um, a population there that was irradiated uh, by these uh, tests of uh, nuclear weapons. We're talking about annihilation. We're talking about the elimination of the human species. Now that should grab someone's attention, you know, rather than talk, just talking about, well, there could be a nuclear war, there could be a limited, a limited nuclear war. A limited nuclear war is like a limited pregnancy. It doesn't exist. Radiation does not know international boundaries. It will envelop Quebec. It will envelop Van, um, British Columbia, Alberta, and, you know, the Western prairies and the United States. I mean, you know, just as we've seen a good, good example with the pandemic, the pandemic has shown that there are no borders that are safe. We have to act as a global community to protect ourselves. And so to, to dial back to your question about uh, military uh, contractors, they are benefiting enormously from this war and from future wars, you know, as NATO becomes more and more uh, weaponized, you know, at, as it becomes a tool of U.S. imperialism and U.S. foreign policy, uh, that likelihood uh, grows increasingly. And who pays ultimately? I just outlined who gains the the ones who have uh, shares in the corporation in these military corporation. Who pays? Ordinary Canadians, ordinary Americans who see their tax dollars going towards weaponry rather than to universal and health care, affordable housing, a clean environment. I mean, right at this moment, I mean, we're talking about the war in the Ukraine. We are in the greatest crisis humankind has ever faced, and that is the climate chaos that is rapidly accelerating. And I do wanna mention that the war broke out on February 24th. What happened on February 28th, just four days later? The IPCC, the UN Intergo Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued its most dire report. Where was that report reported? It was buried in the back pages of newspapers and magazines. It was barely mentioned in radio broadcasts or in uh, TV uh, broadcasts. Uh, 
uh, we have to be focusing on this issue above all others. We have to you know, negotiate a peace settlement, however flawed it may be, in, in uh, Ukraine, and then turn our attention with extreme urgency. You know who's been absolutely terrific in talking about these issues is the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. He's been screaming, literally, about we are in code red, we are in a desperate situation. Those are the words that are being used over and over again. Desperate, unprecedented, has lost its meaning, basically, because every new report that the UN comes out with has new examples of something being unprecedented, like the ice uh, being melted, the uh, the huge ice shelf broke off uh, in Antarctica. Uh, that you know will cause sea levels to rise. That will cause coastal flooding. I mean, the St. Lawrence River may overflow its banks. Uh, the Hudson River in New York. Uh, coastal areas will be under great threat. And that's just the beginning of climate chaos and millions of refugees. The UN is estimating now that by 2050, that's only 30, that's only 28 years away. So definitely in your lifetime, and maybe with some luck mine, um, you know, there'll be 1 billion climate refugees. This is going to be the fodder for enormous conflict as populations continue to expand. Uh, there is a scarcity of water and food, there will be. Uh, this, this is a formula for war and disaster. We have to be talking about this issue. Yes, you know, focus on the military industrial complex and of course on ending the war in the Ukraine, but we need to get back to focusing on climate change. Last question, David. Um, and please feel free to respond as long or as short as you would like to uh, given time. Um, but I wanted to just um, point out um, a lot of the points and the framing that you've shared and, and thank you for doing so, um, really falls outside of the sort of repeated pattern that we're seeing around coverage on Ukraine, which is you know coverage that very much demonizes the Russian state um, and talks explicitly about the war crimes taking place. And that is very important. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have documented the war crimes that are affecting communities in Ukraine. I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about the possibility for acknowledging that, but also not um, sort of going beyond the framework of coverage. Because, you know, as you talked about, like, and thank you for sharing your thoughts about the military industrial complex and the urgency of climate change. It just seems like there's a lot of context and picture missing in terms of the ways that this urgent situation is framed that sells us short in terms of like the, the, the issues that need focus. And when a critique is raised, it's basically this idea is put forward, oh, well, you're pro-Russian state. You can be, I, and I, I'm asking just, just to say, well, acknowledging what's happening is important, but also 
acknowledging the larger context and the, the multitude of crises we face is also important. How is it possible to, to do both of those things, right? And, and why such a gap in media coverage? Well, the media, is, the media are looking for quick formulae. Uh, war is very exciting. You can hear it in the adrenaline rush in the voices of the correspondents who are reporting from the Ukraine, uh, how excited they are. And, and then you have dramatic backdrops of buildings being blown up and uh, flames shooting up in the sky and black smoke coming from uh, oil depots that have been uh, rocketed by, by the Russians. So it, it's very, very exciting. And you could see why there's this tendency to celebrate and glorify a war. Uh, for example, if you were to do a, a report, if you were, let's say in television, a report on a bank loan that was very dodgy, that was uh, problematic. So you would be standing in front of this bank, not a very exciting uh, background to have, you know, talking about uh, how the loan officers in the bank uh, cheated customers. Okay, so, you know, there isn't that glamour uh, if I could say that war has historically uh, attracted. I mean, you know, we have here in the U.S. someone like Ernest Hemingway, who uh, whose novels were, you know, really constructed on the glorification of violence uh, to to a great extent. Not all men in the sea, but uh, the other uh, for whom the bell tolls, uh, for example, and the sun also rises. Now, given the background does not mean you're in favor of this or that person or this or that policy. It's giving an understanding of why things are the way they are. So when I talk about the background of Russia being given assurances that NATO would never expand eastward is not a celebration for Putin or for Russia. It's giving the context, it's giving the rationale, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking that they've used this word, the Russians, betrayed. They felt that, you know, the US, particularly in the 90s, took great advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the, uh, I must say, which I failed to mention initially, notice that NATO not only uh, continued in, in 19. Uh, 90, it expanded as we've talked about, but the Warsaw Pact was dissolved by the Soviet Union, by Gorbachev, that military alliance. And as I mentioned, German unification was allowed uh, to proceed. So given that information is not an endorsement for war or aggression or violation of international law or humanitarian uh, war crimes, uh, incidentally, uh, war crimes are attributed to only to designated enemies. So when Israel commits a war crime, it doesn't exist. It's vetoed in the United Nations. Uh, can Ottawa, you know, goes along with whatever the U.S. says about uh, Israel. And it disappears from the history books because it, it was never uh, recorded. Uh, that happens uh, all the time. You know, we're hearing a lot about Russian oligarchs. Okay, there are Russian oligarchs. Uh, how about um, American oligarchs? Do you ever hear about them? You, people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk. 
uh, I call them, they're called here in this Orwellian framework, entrepreneurs, business geniuses, job creators. You know, they are celebrated, whereas their counterparts in Russia or in other designated enemy states like Syria and Iran and North Korea, uh, they are oligarchs. You know, it's just one example of, of this uh, Orwell dictionary that I'm trying to compile. You know, uh, off, defense means offense. You know, the, when you are always defending yourself, you're never, uh, you're never the aggressor. So every time anything happens uh, in occupied Palestine, the Palestinians resist, that's offense. And what the Israelis do is defense. We need to break down these terms of propaganda. That was a conversation with David Barsamian of Alternative Radio. Uh, he's an author and radio host who has co-authored books uh, with Noam Chomsky, the late Edward Said, and many others. This has been the 103rd edition of Free City Radio. It is Wednesday, the 30th of March. We share a new episode once a week. And I wanted to go out with a uh, piece of music from the group Daka Braka with their track Baby. And thank you to Frank Barat, author, for sharing with me this uh, Ukrainian group, uh, great music group. Yeah.